we are the only species on Earth producing waste. It's an invention by the, by the human beings, not by any other. So we have to make sure that we as a species on this Earth cannot produce waste. Hello, hello. Welcome to the Good Garbage Podcast. My name is Veth Krishna. My primary reason for existence has been to find ways to leave our wonderful planet cleaner. We will be speaking with material innovators, creators and propagators to learn from them how we can build for scale and towards a regenerative future. Their stories will help us answer the big question, what is good garbage? Probably the greatest challenge we face in packaging today is uh, flexibles, which is basically multi-layered substrates. Uh, Repack from Germany is working on that. And we get a masterclass, literally, uh, from the co-founder and CTO, Sven Sievers. Repack is utilizing cellulosic films and uh, specialized metallization technologies to ensure they get the right barriers and also create compostability. Uh, for funders, they are also looking for their Series A funding now. It's a great company to go for. Enjoy the conversation. Hello, hello. I'm so happy today to have Sven Sievers, the co-founder and CTO of Super7 with their brand Repack. Flexible packaging is such a huge issue and I don't think we talk about it enough uh, because the materials, as soon as you make them multi-layer, they become so much more complex. As far as we know, it's going to take over 100,000 years for a simple flexible packaging to go away. So the work you guys are doing at Super 7 is super exciting. I'm looking forward to learning from you about all that you're doing. Thank you so much for taking the time to join us and to have this conversation. Welcome to the show. Good evening, Matt. I really appreciate your invitation. So it's a pleasure for me to be here, give you some more information about our business model and our products. So um, I'm really excited about this. Thank you. And we're going to start with Sven, the person. So tell us more about your growing up. Uh, I know that you're based near Hamburg in Germany. And if there were any early influences uh, that shaped your life and what you do today. Yeah, I start with my well, I was born. I was born really in also in Hamburg, so I'm I'm originally from Hamburg. I left Hamburg for some time, but um, I just grew up here in quite normal conditions, I would say. So my childhood and my my father, my uncle, my brother, my cousins—they are all engineers. So, but I'm not. <laughs> I'm. I just have another profession. I learned it. Maybe that makes also a kind of difference that you have it in your blood a little bit, that you would really take care about these technical processes and looking forward to to improve some things, to learn some things, to analyze some things. So, and um, after I finished my school, I made an apprenticeship as a as a joiner. I think it's a joiner is the right word. So, building up furniture industrially. And this is what I did uh, the the first ten years of my of my professional life, I would say, and then I had the chance to study and uh, I, I I catched this chance and uh, started to study industrial design in Germany for five years and uh, I, I finished it in 2005 so it's a long time ago and I said to myself okay what can I do with these professions then I started to make my own business but a small one and I, I ran it for three years I built up a lot of things and make concepts for investment goods and for every kind of product and also working with wood was in my blood um, after 10 years of um, being employed and made myself business i stopped and i said to myself okay now it's time to 
have a review of what I have done and maybe we can, I can improve myself in thinking what is going to be next. It was really an initiation. It was not by accident, but it's, maybe it's also just came the time that I listened to a guy called Professor Braungart. He is the founder of Cradle to Cradle and the IPEA Institute in Hamburg. And I listened to him. He was, uh, I think it was in Berlin at TEDx. And I listened to him. He's a chemist and I'm an industrial designer and joiner and product developer, I would say. And he said so many right things that I immediately thought about, I have to stop my profession immediately and have to think about what, what's coming next. And from this point of time, I, I really appreciated this TEDx session. It was just one hour, but it, it opened my mind. And I said, okay, I have to change the things and I have to change my whole action about putting and developing things and put it on the market. And I said, the circular economy is the perfect thing to do so. So you have to make up your mind about where the materials are coming from. And you also have to make up your mind about what's going to be the end of life scenario. And in between, there are a lot of steps where you can improve things, adjust details to make it good. And 2016, I quitted my job, my good paid job. And then I started in 2017, this business here. So Sven, uh, can you tell us about your current work with Super7 and Repack? I found it with uh, two friends, I would say. One is my friend from the studies, and the second is my wife. So uh, a lot of risky things <laughs> included in this constellation, but um, I think um, I can never do it alone. I have really good capabilities, but I cannot run a business. What I have in my mind is a standalone version, I would say. I have to uh, yeah, initiate a cooperation with these two guys. I know them for 20 years, and I know what they can do. I know what I can do, so we founded our company, Super7, um, in 2017, March, and said, okay, we want to make products better. This was the basic idea of this business model. And we thought about where we can start and said, okay, what is one of our most important problems and global problems we have, invisible problems we have, and we have to tackle. And, and this was packaging. And the flexible packaging was just the start. And we said, okay, it's not really a big thing. Uh, packaging seems to be really very simple. Um, the processes are simple, so it's just printing and whatever. So, But um, after two years of business, we learned a lot. And it could be that this task will, yeah, will occupy us for the rest of our life. Because then we really found out when you go into details, when we buy chips or chocolates or whatever, these small little packagings, what does it make to make out of some materials you have a, a functional packaging? This is really, really difficult. You have to fulfill a lot of requirements. The first business plan we had, and we went to the bank and said, give us money for this business idea. When you read it right now, it is ridiculous. And it's really funny also. But after two years, we said, okay, we have to specialize because the range is too, too wide and we can be copied by anyone when it's too simple. And then we started to specialize in food packaging. And there is really a problem with the packaging. You mentioned it, Vet. Then it's the multi-layer packaging you have with all the additives, with all these layers and barriers and whatever's in there, metallization and printing and all the things. And at the end, you cannot recycle it. It's waste. And we do not want to produce any waste. We are the only species on Earth producing waste. 
So the aim was then to develop and produce food packaging that substitutes this multi-layer packaging and gives them one character for the waste management. And the only character which is really good and does not turn this material, this packaging material into waste is we think uh, we have to look at the nature. And the nature gives us the hint how we can do that. Then you can close the circle. The vision is when all these small plastic packagings we use for chips, for chocolate, for pasta, for thousands of things in our daily life, when we turn that into compostable packaging which composts in nature, then it's digested by microorganisms. So the materials we use are not really these high-tech supermaterials. The materials we use um, were invented also 100 years ago. And the cellulose as a film and as a flexible packaging material was invented in 1908 from a guy from Switzerland. We transform these really old materials into a new context and 2022 is a new context regarding to 1908. Our work is to research, to monitor, to source good materials, to combine them, inks, adhesives, films, paper, all the things that makes flexible packaging work to a functional packaging. And this is really, really a challenge. And this is what we make now for, seriously, for three years right now, these high barrier, multi-layer food packaging. We substitute it piece by piece and branch by branch. Our task is now to look at all the food sectors we have and try to substitute the existing material made from fossil resources. So we have to, we have to find out ways to source materials growing on the earth and not coming from under the earth. Otherwise, we never get a balance. So on. this is what we do. We have a vision, of course, and we know where to go, but we have existing solutions which works. So all the materials we are putting on the market, before we put them on the market, they are tested from toxicity, from heavy metals, disintegration tests, ecotoxicity tests, all the things that makes it, I th would say, biocompatible for nature. Now, five years after we, we founded the company, we are really specialists because it is really a lot of work and intense work to make it market ready with these requirements on this level we have. The system and the model is, can be exported in every country in the world with the existing infrastructure of machines. So it's also really important. Thank you, Sven. Interestingly, our lives have coincided in a very interesting way. You got influenced by Professor Braungart and I got influenced also by Professor Braungart and Bill McDonough who was the partner for Professor Borongard and they together uh, developed Cradle to Cradle. And interestingly, I was talking to Bill last evening and uh, we were discussing about flexible packaging, but, uh, but interesting how lives collide. Uh, but I'm going to take a step back a little bit uh, because it's very interesting to see how you, one of your best friends and your wife have come together. And I want to know more about that, how that happened, why did they agree to work with you, and how do you divide roles, and what do each one of you do? And I also know uh, that Hans was uh, your best man at your wedding as well. So, you know, this is a really close relationship. So before we jump more into packaging, a little more about how this partnership works. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> this is also a kind of story um i 
just have to convince them that it's a good idea to quit their jobs and work with me. So the first thing and idea was, okay, I have a good idea. I think it's going to work because I am experienced enough to start that. I know a lot of technology and processes and all the things, materials and all, but I am just one guy. And the vision was not to make small business. The vision was a little bit bigger because mm, I immediately understood what that's going to be the consequence and how disruptive is this kind of business model. First was my my uh, my wife, and she said, "Okay, um, that is really risky." And I said, "Yes, I know, but we are now together for 20 years, and I think we know each other very good and can also estimate if it's going to be good or not, and we can also stop that. It's not the question." And then um, I started to get in contact with uh, Hannes, and he is now also living in Berlin. And said, okay, Hannes, I have a good business idea. And he said, hey, just tell me, I, I listen. And he said, immediately, I want to be part of that. But my, my wife's side was a little bit hard to convince her. But at the end, it was clear that starting a new business means also to have a purpose, to do good things and not to waste your time with bullshit jobs. And my wife thought about that for one week. And afterwards, she said, okay, I stopped my job. I quit my job too. But my family and also Katja and Hannes, they supported me. And also the bank was convinced by our business idea. So then we started in our apartment where we lived. We started there. And uh, it was really clear who has what kind of rule in this company. I was the guy who makes ideas to going to be alive in, in a product. This is what I did for 15 years then. So a good idea means not that you get a good product at the end. So I just started all the development process. I now have the, the, the rule of CTO, so I'm responsible technically. My wife, she was really good in, in wholesaling internationally, really good in, in dealing with other countries and uh, um, also making all this financial part. She became CEO. And Hannes is really good in communication and brand building and so on. He, he um, becomes the CMO, so it's marketing chef. That's his um, so it was not really hard to find the right rules. And it's still like this. It's still like this, that we have our responsibilities in this field and it works very well. Want to be a part of the next big thing in the compostable packaging space? Check out gcahub.com. G-C-A-H-U-B dot com. Create your free account and connect with others in the sustainable packaging industry on GCA Hub. You can exchange ideas, network, solutions, problems, and learn through curated resources. Let's connect for impact. Now, let's get back to the conversation. So, of course, you could have taken many paths. Why was it cellulose? You know, there are so many bioplastics today. What was it that convinced you that this is the right substrate to use and to go for in terms of flexible packaging? Yeah, this is a really good question because there's also a story behind that. I just worked in a design agency for 10 years and we started um, a packaging project for um, for a customer. And it was my task then to find the right materials for their applications. Then I just found a guy who sells cellulose film. And it was like everything. I'm really a curious person. And then I started to research a little bit more. And in Germany, it's called Zellglas. I found out that it was invented in 1908 and there was an existing industry in Germany with these kind of materials before the Second World War. And I just got a book from 1932 and it describes the whole processing, the whole thing. It was original samples inside from 1932 and they were still there. 
So that was really a point where I said, okay, I have to start making me more familiar with this kind of material. What can I do with that? Of course, in the project, because it is an, also an expensive material, it is expensive in the, as a raw material, um, the customer said, it's, no, it's, it's too expensive, we cannot afford it, we want to do that. But, and I just invited the guy who offered this Celadus film in the internet, with a big company behind it, of course. It's a Japanese company. And then he came to our office, and I just had a talk for an hour, and he told me about these benefits and also the risk and the chances, everything about this material. And then I started to make up my mind. Um, what can I do with that? What kind of specification it is? What kind of um, properties it has? And, and then I started to work with that in my free time, I would say. I think it's, it's now it's 15 years ago, and the guy, I know him today, so the relationship still lasts. We buy the cellulose film from his company, but you are right, the cellulose film is just one of the materials we have. And was the first one is in every time it's the central part of our packaging is cellulose film. Because it has really good properties we can use. The basic materials, you mentioned it already, that was polymers made from starch, sugar, oils and acids. And you already mentioned this is PBS, PBAT, PHA, PHB, whatever it makes. And we found the right materials and also inks and adhesives with the same level of ecological standard. And then we started to build up a kind of system that we have. Okay, we had used the cellulose in combination with this kind of polymer and that makes this packaging. So now we have a kind of modular system where we combine the materials and the thickness and also in the polymer type which fits to the food. But we do not use cellulose as a, as a monofilm for everything. It's not possible. And I choose cellulose because it was the only uh, material which has no synthetic character, like PLA and PBAT. It is a regenerated cellulose. It means you just separate the lignin of the cellulose from wood. You do not have to put a lot of things in there and put it together and whatever. So the microorganisms love cellulose. So they love it. And we also started to, to see what the earth will do when you put it in the soil. This is really interesting. You say, okay, um, we know microorganisms are a little bit lazy in the winter and they love the summer and they love humidity and they love temperature. So also, I think I have four kilos of microorganisms in my, in, in my body. So that means uh, they are part of us and they are part of the soil. But you cannot see that. You cannot smell it. You cannot see that. And then we grabbed it into soil and start to look what is going to be happened. The microorganisms are able to, to eat and to digest this material within 20 days. And it is gone. It's nothing there. As we noticed that, we said, okay, this is really a circular economy topic. And then we start to close the loop. We are not just inventors and developers of flexible packaging, we can also improve a whole system and a whole technology that works for all over the world um, with not so many efforts. You don't have to build these big production plants for sorting out and for washing and for whatever, detecting all the things. You can just use the nature. Yeah, it's so interesting. And I'm going to focus on both the technology and the cost side a little more. But yes, exactly what you mentioned. The one challenge is the cost, because at least, you know, in my exploration, it ends up being almost at least, and I'm talking maybe five years back, 
but at least 5x of the cost of a polyfill. So, so that's one of the challenges. And of course, then there is two properties which we look for for flexible packaging, mainly the WVTR and OTR or the moisture barrier and the air barrier. Flexible films from cellulose can have a decent oxygen barrier, but maybe the water vapor barrier is a challenge. So I want to learn from you two things. One is how do you think of the cost and you know work with that? And I'm sure there are some brands who are ready, but when you look at, you're also looking at scale. And the second part is the technology. So shelf life is one challenge. Would love to learn from you more about how do you tackle cost and how do you tackle technology. You are right that the price is always uh, a thing when you live in a in a system like we do. Price and um, costs and effectivity and maximum of um, wins are on the yeah on the top of the priority list. We start also to compare it with other branches. So in Germany, we eat a lot of bread and we have a kind of bread index there also. So that means when you want to have a good bread with good ingredients, which took the time to grow and then you have to pay three times more than for just a normal one, which is coming from the industry because the ingredients are have not this quality and they took not the time to make it good and good for the humans and they put a lot of additives in there to optimize it for the industry and not for the people and it's the same in the packaging sector when we talk about products good food products and they have a good price because they are have a good quality and also a good packaging fits to that and we talk about from three to six percent of the price you get in the retail shop with from a product can be um, spent for the packaging Is it more than six percent? Then you have to talk, of course, and then you say, okay, maybe it's worth it, maybe not. We have to compare it with the with the value of the product itself, and that separates the market. Good food products, organic, fair trade, whatever it is, let's really, for sure, also choose a packaging with the same quality. Quality means the quality itself in the raw materials, and also in the consequences of the material. Um, but you're right, the costs are, um, of course, a thing. But the target customers are not these, firstly, not these really big companies. The smaller companies are the pioneers, and they are really taking the risk. And you have to take the risk to have innovation. Otherwise, no chance. Our customers are mostly also like this. When they feel it, that it's going to be work with these more expensive packaging, I would say, it's a, it's a basic decision for a company culture. The first question we ask our customer when we talk to them is what is the reason you contact us and what is the reason it's a strategic decision for your company culture or for your for your future so this is the price discussion and the technology for the high barrier properties so i know that it's it's a it's a number and the first thing also when we want to substitute with a polyolefin packaging is give us your numbers we try to imitate that in the product safety and the shelf life and the speed of the machines and all other properties that they have to have this packaging and what you want to have as a requirement for this packaging. And then we have a really, really big table with all the materials and numbers and then we have a look what can we do to substitute this material. And you are right, the water vapor transmission rate and the oxygen transmission rate are two of the um, significant numbers you have to compare. And, you know, the requirements for the shelf is coming from the retailers. 
and they say, when you put some fruits and veggies here in this, in our shop, it has to be fresh for 10 days. That's the minimum. The maximum is when you have some kind of yeah, chocolate or dried foods like beans or these all these dried things, rice or whatever you have. You have to make sure that it's going to work for 24 months. This is the maximum. And when we want to substitute the things, we have to follow the same requirements. Otherwise, nobody wants to take this material because the requirements are clear. Otherwise, the retailers won't take it and won't buy it. And the barrier technology is a mix of every little thing you can have. So it's also a kind of our business model, not to go into the details, but we are surrounded by really good and um, experienced institutes. And um, we have a lot of universities and institutes They take care about these barriers, the coatings, heat sealability, water vapor, oxygen, nitrogen, modified atmosphere packaging, everything you want, you have to have when you want to put packaging on the market. The second is, some people really do not believe that, but even metallization in a special way is allowed to hold the standard for garden compostability. Also even in the toxics and also in the heavy metals and whatever it is. And the secret is the amount and the thickness and also the processing. So we are even able to metallize films and then you have a really good barrier property. We can add it, not in any way, but in some ways. So the barrier technology is building on, on three basics. The corporations with the universities and the Fraunhofer institutes. Um, yesterday I went to a, a company um, in South Germany and we tested a new barrier property which is also formable that is really amazing. It, they call it liquid glass and, it, and I never saw that before and it's just on the market now for they invented it one year of one and a half years ago. It's quite new and we just tested it yesterday and it was amazing. And it's crystal clear. The application is like normal so everything is fine so now it's going to be that We implement it in our ways. The second thing is all the metallization, but the people feel that metallization does not work with the, with the soil or with the nature. From a science way, it's not right. Metal is in every body part, in every plant part, in whatever. So there is all around us is metal. Natrium, magnesium, calcium, all these things are surrounding us. And they also they are parts of um, the soil. But the people, when they have these shiny and um, metallized surface, they do not believe that. So it's a little kind of psychological thing. But we know that it fulfills the requirements and it's not an idea, it's, um, it's a requirement that it's worldwide made by accredited institutes. So. And the third part of the barrier technology is the density of the materials. It sounds a little bit strange, but it is like this. When you have materials, for example, polyethylene, which has a density of 0.984, That you can see it, it flows on the water, on the surface. We have densities of more than one. 1.24 until 1.4. It has much more density and that makes the material better for some things, for UV radiation, for some kind of really of barrier you need. And these three things in the modular system we have uh, makes it that we have reached numbers for the water vapor transmission rate less than 0.7 and with a oxygen transmission rate less than 0.02. So that is also good for coffee, for tea, for everything. So that is really amazing. And I think we are one of the few companies which can hold these ecological standards so high and fulfill these hard requirements of the, of the um, 
barrier properties you have to have to ensure the shelf life. That's truly remarkable. I'm just so excited to hear that because I know that it's not easy. I actually want to learn a little more and I'm totally with you when you look at when you talk about metallization because you can do nanometallization. Sometimes you don't even see the silver kind of uh, film. You can you you can use allox, you know, you don't even have to use aluminum. You have to use you can use aluminum oxide. The challenge that I see there in that side and I am presuming that you have sort of found a way to tackle it is more in the conversion because uh, when I look at uh, metallization, the multiple methods that can be explored are things like transfer metallization, but then you have a polyethylene film and you sort of laminate it and you remove it. The better way I've found is condensing metallization, but then you need big condensing chambers and then, you know, and I'm totally talking about the conversion and how are you looking to tackle it? Now, the challenge I find in condensing metallization is the scale. So, you know, the, the highest size that I've found so far for condensing metallization is about 30 tons a day. So, and that's a decent size. Uh, but considering the size of the challenge and, you know, you also wanting to go to a scale, that's a limitation in terms of condensing metallization. Are there any other methods? You know, I've looked at spray metallization, for example, but does that work well? So in particular, you know, staying and picking your brains on the side of uh, metallization, because I think that's an absolute key, at least for right now, for the water vapor barrier. Uh, and how would you go about doing it? What's your ideal method? So, so you know, so just uh, want to pick your brains on the method that you would recommend in order to do it at scale. Yeah, I think you are totally right. Even the processing and the converting of the raw materials into films and whatever is another kind. So when you talk when we talk about PHA, for example, you cannot use the old technology because it's a bioreaction in four or five steps. So it means that is another kind of process. For the metallization, um, I think it's not that we sometimes we need the scale we need it just in several places so we we have to spread it in small units and not going to work with one unit that makes metallization for whole europe so i think the scale is not to build up these big production plants the scale is just to decentralize all the methods and put it in small things so you can act then regionally. The idea is also also not to make one solution. Maybe the metallization in the UK fits for Middle Europe, but when you when you when we talk about India, maybe there's a totally other way. Maybe it's also not really necessary to make it shelf life for 24 months. So this is also what we can talk about. It's some kind of a little bit ridiculous that we have to have a chocolate bar which is 24 months, and we think we have to adapt it per market also and the requirements for the market and in, even in India maybe in the north or the south and the west and the east there are some other infrastructures and this is what we have to look at really at the places we act and we work with and then we have to find the right solution for that this is not just one way and I really I'm, I'm sure that a lot of the packagings are overdosed with a barrier and also the thicknesses that you have to talk also about yeah, coffee is a good thing. Um, there are a lot of aromas in there, about 800 different whatever. But does it need a 140 micron PET alu PE? Really? So also some kind of question. So we optimize the material. We reduce the thicknesses 
how much as we can. And even when it's another kind then and the people are not used to have a little bit modified packaging, then you have the right thing. But it's not the idea to make big plans and centralize all the things. It's even for the compostability. It's good to have several places um, and they are also able also to improve in their environment the system for themselves. We just try to figure out a system, how that works in general, but not in details. And we know the people also from the cultural side, the people have really other behaviors about food and about the whole daily life. And also that makes also this thing different. I cannot say you have to install the whole the same system as in Germany and India. That does not work. It's not possible. That means even when we have a niche technology right now and also a niche product, about 0.5% of all the flexible packaging is going in the way for compostability. So 99.5% are conventional and polyolefins. There are so many possibilities and this is what we do. We do not we are not afraid about the scale up and that we cannot provide the people with material. I think it's going to work right now. We have a lot of more capacities. Today we have partners all over Europe of about five production partners, but there are still a potential of more than another 500 just in Europe. So this is the scale up also. We just have to scale up the market and it's not done. It's not done yet. So we have a lot of possibilities, even when we talk about metallization or coating or whatever you have to have to make these films going to be a good foot packaging. You have to um, scale first the market and we, we are not at the end. We just start right now. We would like to take a minute to thank our sponsors. Good Garbage is sponsored by Packer, a family of brands that produces compostable packaging and works to implement regenerative solutions. Packer's new project is to bring compostable food serviceware and food carry products to the North American marketplace. Learn more at packer.com. Now back to the conversation. Nature is very locally adaptive, right? It is not the same across the world. So you're right, you know, we tend to build these huge facilities for economies of scale, but it's a very humanistic industrial tendency. Ideally, it is locally adapted. I'm going to stay a little more and maybe probably poke you a little more on the technology side uh, in terms of how do you do the heat sealing capability? So, of course, I presume you're using some bioplastic. There are three different ways to close the packaging at the end. When you have a pro packing machine, like just a normal horizontal form film and see machine, like it is on, on the whole thing for chips, for bars, for chocolate, for, for bread, for everything. You can use it for everything. You have three different kinds. You have ultrasonic welding, you have heat sealability, and you have cold seal lacquering also. These are the three technologies. And it seems to me that the cold seal is the fastest. And Speed is one of the most important things for this packaging process. It makes really a difference if you pack 60 bars per minute or 500 bars per minute. Two of them we can fulfill so that in the inside of the packaging we have always enough material to melt and to make the heat sealing or the ultrasonic sealing. Both is possible. I prefer the ultrasonic sealing because it makes a totally clear small little seam and it's perfect and you have to can adjust it really on detail and point to your material. The heat sealing is a little bit rough. Then you have to have make sure that the plastification of the sealing layer on the inside going to start as soon as possible. Not at 30 degrees like cold seal that we can start at 90 degrees like this. And it's going to be started really fast because then it's going to be that you can put from the outside the heat and it's going to be to the inside that makes the time 
not so long and the heat is coming faster into this material. And we started at 90 degrees about that and we go to 200 degrees. That is the maximum, I think so. And this range, it's quite normal. But the most important thing is to have, when you have a good barrier property in the, in the, in the, in the surface, it does not mean that you have a good barrier property in the ceilings. So you have to have enough material to melt. This is the point. And for us, it's a minimum that we detected of the material we, we need as a layer on the inside to fulfill these requirements. And I think it starts with about 18 microns. This is uh, the minimum of what we can have. And for the really big machines, it's, it's necessary even to have 550 microns on the inside. So in this range, we can act. But anyway, Cold sealing is one of the challenges we have. So, uh, as I mentioned, we are not just selling packaging, and we are also know that we need the speed to work with the big companies. They need the speed, so we need the speed. And we can just speed it up when we know what the machines want to have. And we know also all the machine supplies of them, so we know how that works. And we know that in some areas, we have to improve this thing. So, now we are started half year ago to cooperate with a company and a university to make this application for the speed the cold seal home compostable that's amazing yeah but i'm still inquisitive about a couple of things uh, which you've done i would say more from funding and the market side uh, the lion's den is something that you guys were participating in and i think we have a version called shark's tank it's probably very similar so tell us a little more about that experience and how that helped the company uh, you know, get more recognition, scale up, and how did that happen? So we'd love to learn more about that. So, of course, when you, when you start a, a business model like we do, we need money to speed up, and we need money for these little experiments and the freedom we have in testing and failing and testing and having these intellectual property rights and all the things cost a lot of money. So you are right, we need the funding. We need some people who or some companies who support us with this idea. The first was quite normal. It was the bank. You go to the bank and then you, you get some money from them. And you have to pay it back. But at the end, we said, okay, we need really partners also. They help support us not with money, the strategy behind that, business development and so on. And it was the first step that we said, okay, we need these partners and how much money do we need regarding comparable startups, I would say, or young companies. We found it not so much money, but we did the best out of it. When we do not have these development processes all the time and the research and development work, we have to put money in that sector. Otherwise, it does not work. So we want to have a leadership in innovation. So we have to work on that steadily. But making revenues out of this business model costs a lot of time. Um, you can grow organically. So maybe that works in 50 years then or in 30 or whatever. But it's not our thing. So we have a certain time period where we can place ourselves on the market and therefore we need money of course not so many money as some of the startups but we need money and the funding is that we have now passed the seed um, phase we made a crowdfunding was really successful and even this story with the on tv with the Höhle der Löwen call in germany so yeah the lion's den so they contacted us two years before we went to them they started to contact us and we said, oh, no, it's not our business. So we have a serious business and this is kind of TV format. So because we, we knew all these guys sitting in the jury and they're not really into our business, but they contacted us two times. The third time we said, okay, our marketing chef said, guys, in two days, we have a date with lines in the lion's den in Cologne in 
Germany, and we have to pack our suitcases. And we say, hey, no, no, this is, no, 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 it's not going to be like this. He said, yes, it's the really the unique chance to present our story on the stage. It doesn't matter at the end what's it's going to be then, if we have a deal or not. That was not the, the main intention. The main intention was, can we tell the story to the people, this really complex story of all these little details to people and they understand in five minutes if they appreciate that or if they say, we don't believe in that. And we did it. So we went to this stage and presented our story. And it was like such a success because everyone understands the story and everyone appreciated that. Not these industrial business to business guys, they're just the normal people. Afterwards, we get thousands of messages and any channels and they really said, hey, how can I help you? How can I support you? I really appreciate everything. You're wonderful, whatever. And then we said, okay, um, this is a proof that we can tell the story. It's not just a thing about the minds, it's also about the heart because it's belonging to the next generations, what we have to tell. And this presentation on stage was a, a kind of signal for us to go on and was a motivation for us to go on. And then we started this crowdfunding and we also we got some really good partners which helps us also to make this business and they put their money and their heart into this project. Some of them are also working with us so it's a kind of really big family we, we created all around that. And now we are preparing the next step to really to scale up in different countries. So first thing, we installed active sales. Last five years, we did not have any sales. So the people came to us. We never came to the people. So now we started it. Last year, we started to, to initiate that in the region of Switzerland, Austria, and Germany. So this is a, also Italy. So And I just heard one really good thing out of a guy from the United States. He said, no people, no work. So no business. When you have no people, you cannot make business. You have to have people doing the business. So this is what we do right now. We're getting the B-level experts into our company who wants to change some things and are really experienced and we have to pay them, of course. And this is what we prepare right now, the Series A financial round. So it's a little bit bigger. We um, have new financial plans for that on the sales side, so on the scalable side, on the production network side, and also on the science and material side. We need also money, so this is the status right now. We prepare the Series A financial round, and this is really, really um, exciting for us because it's the next really big step. But at the end, uh, you're right, it's a matter of time also, and also a matter of putting money in the good ideas and not in the bad ideas. <laughs> So my second to the last question is uh, about scale. You've talked a lot across the conversation about your clarity that you want to be able to scale. And that seems to be a clarity that has been there from the beginning. You know, in order to be able to impact, there has to be significant amount of ammunition that we gather in order to be able to service what we are trying to do. So how do you see your company scaling in the next, say, maybe you can take a, any window, maybe five years, 10 years, you know, something like that. What is it that you see? What is your dream that, you know, this is the kind of scale I want to see? And hence, of course, there's going to be that much impact. Yes, thanks, Vet. So this is really a good question. The scale and also the markets um, were opened by three factors. That is the authority and the law. That is the market readiness and the culture of the people it's themselves. And also, um, if the market has the infrastructure 
to go there regarding also the taxes and the waste management, all these little things. So we can detect. So this is then also a reason for us to go on to the market. So country by country, I would say. But the scale is not about just to enter country per country. The next scale is also, as I said, we have a lot of food products that we did not even mention. So a lot of things that we can pack in the future because we improve ourselves. A lot of things has to be packed with flexible packaging. And maybe if we do not talk about food, we just talk about also other products. All these little things we can buy. The first scale is in, in the products itself. We are now able also to make t-shirts bags. Anyone else can make it too, but we are able to do that. So when we have the proof of concept, we can even spread our product range. It's the first thing. The second thing, as I mentioned, is the market itself. It's the country and the requirements and also the needs of the country. And the third thing is that we have a kind of infrastructure and also readiness with this infrastructure means when we want to act locally, we have to have the machines there also. But as I told you, we're using the same machines. So in every country, we have another infrastructure, but they make everything the same. And they are all over the world. The scale is not really the problem. The problem is also to enter a country and the market. You have to be familiar and you spend a lot of time to um, find the needs of the market. So you have to spend money before you get the revenue. And this costs you maybe a year, maybe also two years. So I just read a study from the United States. I think it's 200 billion euro per year, the global market for flexible packaging. We made the revenue of the last year of 2 million euro. So this is a really, a really gap. But it's, it's the market. It's, it has the volume. So we produce about 450 million tons of plastic globally every year. So and it's getting more and more and more and more. Since 50 years, it grows steadily. So when we have the vision to replace it piece by piece, market by market, product by product, we have a lot of things to do and that makes the scale. And anyway, it's a little bit, sounds a little bit funny, but when we can replace 400 million tons of packaging, we reached our target into good. No, absolutely. And I... I... I do think that you have to think big because the size of the challenge is large and I think you're doing it in the right way, looking at it piece by piece and looking at it country by country and area by area, looking at forming partnerships with different converters. And many of these converters may be already using plastic on their machine. So all they have to do is switch the product and, and use a different substrate. So I think the business model sounds fascinating. And of course, that takes me to my... Last question, which is a question we ask every guest. What does good garbage mean to you and how do you see or perceive good garbage? I just make up my mind about what the title of this thing is. And good garbage is a really good thing. So that makes also this cradle to cradle principle clear. Not waste and it's good. It has good properties. Doesn't matter what. So for us, we see that we have to make sure that we as a species on this earth cannot produce waste. It's an invention by the, by the human beings and not by any other create creature of this world. So in our thing, we have to turn this thinking of producing waste into producing nutrients or valuable materials, whatever it makes. In our case, it's I feed the microorganisms with sugar and starch and oil and everything they really like. 
And with the loss of the packaging, I create millions of new organisms. Because they digest it and they grew for that and they use it as a nutrient. So after composting the things, you have a valuable material which has a really total value for all the agricultural, all the soil we have. It's a problem of the world that we have do not have any carbon content anymore in the soil. That is really, and we try to make it with uh, synthetic fertilizers, and that does not work. At the end, we have the same problem with the oil and the gas and the coal. It has to be substituted by these natural fertilizers. And our packaging and the structure of our packaging, the polymers and the whole thing is food for the soil. And this is what we think about good garbage. On. That does not cause us any problems or any sustainable problems that we have in two or three generations. You have to create values. And this is what we do. At the end, you can have the choice to selling natural compost as a fertilizer to the people or you have a big thing of burned stuff which you have to put it in some landfills. You have the choice of this or this and good garbage for us it's clear it's the way we go so. Super, super Sven. Thank you so much for all your ideas, your intelligence, you know for sharing so Uh, profoundly about you know what you're doing this was a fascinating conversation i wish you nothing but the best as you guys go and change the world thank you for being on the show thank you for taking the time uh, for being with us thanks that it was a pleasure i know that we can discuss for hours and for days this is really a really a huge topic so but so this is also the last sentence i would say please do not create any waste anymore so it makes really problems and children and the whole generations afterwards they have really a bigger problem than we have so we just put it on the landfills but they have the problem so please please stop grabbing oil out of the oils and burning it so uh, make it better thank you for listening to the good garbage podcast follow us on social media to never miss an episode links are in the description below i'm your host vedh krishna see you next time